Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. The more you can let yourself feel successful for even the tiniest of successes, the more you will have these transformative, like these pivot moments where you do something tiny and it opens you up to doing much bigger things. Welcome back to episode five of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. BJ Fogg, a behavior scientist at Stanford University. Dr. Fogg founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford. In addition to his research, BJ teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. I had the privilege of attending BJ's bootcamp a few years ago, and it completely changed my life to the point where a testimonial of mine can now be found in BJ's book, Tiny Habits. I have to be honest, I was nervous going into today's episode because I had no idea how we might be able to cover even a tiny fraction of the wisdom around his work. But the great thing about BJ is that he is so good at walking you through the application of everything he teaches step-by-step. The wisdom and takeaways in this episode are off the charts, but don't worry, we have everything captured in the show notes. So just sit back, enjoy, and get ready to have your mind blown. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. Hi, I'm here with Dr. BJ Fogg. This is such an honor, one of my heroes, really, and someone who's changed my life in so many ways. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Mallory, I'm super happy to be with you. I've been really looking forward to this. Oh, thank you. Well, why don't we start? I know you and your work well, and I talk about your work all the time, but just with you giving us a little introduction to you. Yeah, I am a behavior scientist. I've run a lab at Stanford for over 20 years now. And most recently, meaning the last 10 years, I focused a lot on habits and created a method called the Tiny Habits Method, which is a really easy and fast way to create habits. And the broader, so that's a subset of my broader work that I call behavior design, which is a broader set of methods and models. And the book Tiny Habits, which uh, was published last year, brings together the Tiny Habits Method in the most detailed form and also talks about behavior design. So it's really great to have a book out in the world that shares the tiny habits method in depth and shares uh, the broader concepts of behavior design. So I'm all about helping people change in positive ways. And part of that is Stanford. Part of that is my work outside of Stanford in industry. And part of it, yay, hooray, is getting a book into the world in over 25 languages coming up. So that's it's amazing. I actually have it right here. So, and we'll link it below version. too. Really? That's my favorite version. Really? Well, the US paperback, I like the best. Oh. I, yeah, I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm on my second round of it. So I'll link below so folks can go buy that too, because we're only, I was telling you before we hit record, 
trying to pick what we talk about today is so hard because your research and your work just goes so deep and applies to so many different areas of leadership and fundraising for those who are listening. So why don't we start with just you giving a little overview of the FOG behavior model? Because it all kind of rolls back to that. You're right. You're right. The big breakthrough, everybody, came in about 2007. And I won't go into the nitty gritty details, but there's this model that came together for me that I named the FOG behavior model. And this is a fundamental model. It applies to all behaviors. And it goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. There's motivation to do that behavior. There's an ability to do the behavior. And there's a prompt. And when those three things come together at the same moment, the behavior happens. Now, these could be behaviors we want. It could be behaviors we don't want. It's just a universal model for all behavior types, good behaviors, bad behaviors, habits, one-time behaviors, in all cultures, Western cultures, on and on and on, and all ages. So the model itself I write out is B, as in boy, B equals, I guess I should say B as in behavior, <laughs> equals M. AP. So B equals MAP is how I write it out. And there's a, a graphical version of it that's going to be hard to just describe. But that, that model, those pieces coming together for me then opened the door to doing so many other things that were previously impossible without the model. And so that really was the breakthrough there. So the behavior model, you can learn it in two minutes. I guess I gave it like a 45-second explanation, but you can kind of get to behavior model 101 in about two minutes. And then even after, what, 15 years of living with the model, I'm still discovering ways to use it, mm. uh, both for analysis and for design. Mm. I love that. And, you know, for me, learning the model just shifted so many things. And you do this in your book, right? You go kind of piece by piece, and then you have strategies around, okay, if the challenge is motivation, if the challenge is ability, if the challenge is the prompt, how do you solve for, iterate on, and test those different components, which is just such a relieving version of looking at habit building and behavior change because I think we so often, I mean, as you know better than anyone, blame ourselves for like, why couldn't we do this thing? You know, when I came to your boot camp, there were so many habits throughout my life, and not that there still aren't, that I hadn't been able to implement but sort of the negative self-talk that could come from them or my understanding of why I was having trouble incorporating them just kind of got blown out of the water when I learned this model. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, so many people, once they uh, see the fog behavior model and learn how to apply it, it relieves them of all that guilt and shame because they're like, oh, why can't I do this? I must be a flawed person or something. And now they can see it's a system. And it's not about somebody's character. If a behavior is not happening that you want to happen, you know one of the three components is missing. There's not enough motivation or there's not enough ability. In other words, it's too hard or there wasn't a prompt. And it's not always a motivation challenge. And in fact, that's what Tiny Habits is about, is you get rid of the motivation challenge by making the habits so easy and so tiny because it's something as simple to do. It doesn't require lots of motivation. So you kind of do an end run around the motivation problem by making it really, really easy to do. And if a behavior is not happening that you want to have happen, there's a systematic way to troubleshoot that. So first you look and see, is there a prompt? Is there something that reminded me or said, do this now or prompted me? So for example, Mallory, for me meeting you here on Zoom, yes, I had 
motivation to talk to you. Yes, I had the ability because I carved out the time. But if there weren't something that prompted me, like get on Zoom now, I wouldn't be here right now, right? So first thing you do is you make sure there's a prompt. And then often the behavior will happen. All you needed was a reminder or prompt of some sort. If it doesn't happen after it's prompted, the next step isn't to blame yourself or beat yourself up. It's to look at ability. It's like, how do I make this easier to do? So uh, I'll just keep going with this example. So we booked an hour and if for some reason I didn't show up. And even though, you know, I got reminded, you might go, oh my gosh, maybe an hour is too hard. What if I scaled it back and we just did 15 minutes? Now, making it easier to do, like um, here in my home office, my Zoom room, I have these dumbbells right here. Bam. So that's easier to do than going to the gym. And we bought a hydro here for our home and et cetera. So we've made working out easy to do by getting the gear. You need. Sometimes it's shortening the length. Sometimes it's shortening the effort. That's all about making it easier to do. And so first you check the prompt, then you make it easier to do. And then the last, if it's still not happening, then you know you have a motivation challenge. And then that can go different directions. But notice you don't start with motivation. And that's a huge surprise for most people. You, you go the opposite direction. It's prompt, ability. And then if needed, then you're like, oh my gosh, we're in a motivation challenge here. So that's one systematic way to use the fog behavior model. So I love that. And I want to focus, you know, for the purpose of this conversation on fundraisers and nonprofit leaders for their own kind of habits and behavior change. But I do just want to highlight what you just said in terms of donor behavior, because I have so many people come to me. Actually, I was on a call yesterday with someone who said they sent out an email to their listserv asking for donations for a specific thing. And this donor gave a $5,000 gift who they had thought had lapsed, right? Had kind of fallen off the radar. They were trying to figure out how to re-engage them. And so the executive director tells me on the call, yeah, look, she just re-engaged herself. And I was like, no, she didn't. You just prompted her to re-engage, right? And so, so often in fundraising, I think we're like, well, gosh, like I feel like they really like what we do and we have that donation page on our website. And so why aren't they giving us money, but we aren't prompting them, right? And so I love the idea of like, there's the first thing to look for. The second thing to look for is how easy is your donation page? Is it confusing? Is it hard to get through? Are they seeing everything at once? And then, okay, if those two things check out, then there's work to be done on maybe your content and your sort of problem aware people and all of those things. But I love that order of thinking through the challenge. Yes. And let me add to that, the amount of money you're asking people to donate for most people is an ability issue. For somebody like Mackenzie Bezos, it's not, right? I mean, she's got billions. So it's not an ability issue. But ability is, like you said, it's like, how easy is it to donate? You know, the mechanism on the page and so on. But it's also, for most people, it's the size of the donation. And for, like, I've worked with Stanford on some fundraising efforts, annual giving, which is about students giving. And the students don't have lots of money. So you just scale it back and you make it as simple as they don't care what the students give. They just want the students in the habit of giving. And so I've done some research there and it does make a difference. But what you want to do, and now we're going to kind of like geek out mode. What you want to, and if we could see the two-dimensional behavior model, you want to ask for the hardest behavior that the current level of motivation allows. So 
fundraising perspective, you want to ask for the most money that that donor's current level of motivation allows. And I'll frame it back to Stanford. Let's say Stanford got in some big scandal and their football team lost miserably and all of that. Well, in that moment, the day that the scandal hits, donor's motivation is probably not that high. But if Stanford, some faculty win Nobel Prizes and then Stanford wins, you know, Stanford students win gold and the Olympics and all that, then motivation is going to be higher to donate to Stanford. So ideally, you change the size of the ask according to how motivated the person is in that moment, not in general, but in that moment, because that's, now you won't always know exactly what that is. Uh, but that's why I bring this up as kind of a geek out, you know, super graduate level concept is for some people like students, five bucks, 10 bucks, fine. All we want is for you to create a practice and habit of donating. For other people where you really are, like the major gifts at Stanford, you really are trying to get the most because that's the point of major gifts. Then you're figuring out when is the best time to ask this person. You don't want to ask them when, you know, let's say they're super invested in Bitcoin and Bitcoin tanks. That's not a great time. Okay. So I'll, I'll pause there. I'm, I'm sure there's many people that know more about the timing of the ask than I do, but it does fit to the behavior model because the more motivated somebody is, the harder a behavior can do. So the more motivated a Stanford donor is, the more money that they will donate in that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's actually something I do want to hit on here that I think is so important that you talk about in the book, which are the different times of celebration. So, you know, one of the things that you're talking about that I think is really interesting is, you know, I bet there are a lot of fundraisers out there that are like, well, we just had that event last week. So why aren't they giving in this follow-up email, right? And what you're saying is in this moment is when the motivation, where they fall on that motivation scale really matters. And you talk about celebration in your book happening at three key moments. And I actually think if nonprofits figured out how to do this on their donation pages or things like that, it could be tremendous. So will you just tell us what those are? Yeah. Yeah. So celebration is a technique that allows you to feel a positive emotion on demand and especially the feeling of success. And I've named that emotion, I've named it shine. So shine is the name for the emotion when you feel successful. Shine is a game changer. All right. So in order to wire in habits, if you feel shine, if you feel successful at the very beginning of the habit, when you remember to do it, like, oh, I need to take my vitamins, that will help wire in the habit. You can feel shine while you're doing the habit. Let's say you're cleaning off the bathroom mirror and you're going, man, that looks awesome. Good for me. Way to go. So that feeling of success makes that cleaning the mirror behavior more automatic. In other words, habit. Or it can come right at the conclusion of something. So uh, let's say as soon as I finish drinking this glass of water, then I cause myself to feel successful. And it's that emotion, the feeling of success, which, yes, it increases motivation, but it also wires in habits. And by that, what I mean is the behavior will become more automatic. And that emotion is what signals your brain to take note and go, oh my gosh, when I wipe off the bathroom mirror, I feel good. Oh my gosh, I'm going to remember that. Therefore, wiping off the bathroom mirror equals feeling good. Okay, that's kind of what you're doing. You're hacking your brain. And in so many business and fundraising contexts, if you can help your customers or clients or prospects feel a positive emotion, especially the feeling of success, that opens them up Yes, it motivates them. Yes, it helps wire in the habits. It opens them up to being more risk-taking, more exploratory, more creative. All these positive things happen when people feel shine. 
and everybody's had experiences with in your life. Now with the name Shine, it's the feeling of success. I believe, I haven't studied this directly yet, but I do believe that we can recognize the effects of Shine better. We can discuss it better. We can design for it better. So it really opens the door to leverage this emotion, which in some ways is a superpower. And one of the things you, and other people, the more that you give people shine, the more they like you. I mean, think about that, right? You want to be around people that make you feel, yes, positive emotions, but make you feel successful. So there's just, you know, bam, 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 so many reasons that paying attention to the feeling of success and how you help people recognize it or bring it into their life or help people feel successful just has so many. And it's not like you're being sneaky with people. One of my policies is I tell people the most positive, true thing I can tell them. I don't just make something up. I find something true and positive and it's just become a habit. And why not? It's fun to do and it uplifts people. And then that comes back to me. It makes me feel good as well. (laughs) Yeah. And do you think or does the shine need to be specific to that person? Ooh, good question. Go a little further. So I was thinking about this for donation pages, for example, because I just threw that example out. And I was thinking, okay, so if someone arrives at a donation page, and let's say there's a pop-up, because we know there's a lot of fall-off from those pages, right? And so if there was a pop-up that said, oh my gosh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for being a part of blank. We are, you're 30 seconds away from blank. And then as they were filling out the form, because there's drop-off there too, if there was like a, you know, this happens on forms sometimes where it's like 50% of the way there or something like that. Or if they filled in one line and it said, you're almost done 15 more seconds until we can blank. And then they're celebrated after making the donation, how much that might improve or sort of catalyze the behavior on the page. I, I think you're right. And let me break it down to just generic shine and personalized shine. So in terms of generic shine, certainly letting people know they're using the tool correctly. Oh, you're 25%. Because a lot of times you'll use these digital tools and they don't affirm that you're actually using it correctly. Now that seems really basic, but too often it's like, well, I'm waiting here. Like I was filling in a form yesterday and it had multiple pages and it was like so confusing. So I did not feel successful using that form. And then that feeling creeped over into the brand that I was interacting with. It tarnished the brand. But yes, you have just generic, like functional, like you're doing this right. Keep going. You're doing it right. And then you have generic feedback, like your donation is going to help save these old growth redwoods. Thank you so much. And you're leaving these redwoods for the next generation. That could be generic feedback that gives probably most of the donors a feeling of success. Mm-hmm. But if you can personalize it, and it's more challenging, but you could imagine, I'm going to keep going with the Redwoods preservation. If it said, you are leaving a legacy for your children, your children, Jennifer and Mario mm. and Brian and their, and their grandkids and grandkids will be able to enjoy the Redwoods because of what you just did. Notice that's like a even more potent version of the generic one. So it doesn't always have to be that personal. And sometimes it's, at least with digital, it's hard to do that. Now in person, it's easy, right? And that's what people should be doing is being very specific about the praise. But it can be done more and more. 
But the bottom line is don't get too wrapped up and it has to be personal. Just tell people. I mean, even if you think people know that they're saving the redwoods and they're saving the coral reefs or what have you, make that really clear and salient and celebrate that person for what they're doing. Don't assume they know that they're having that kind of impact. Just in general, people never get tired of being praised. Like nobody says, oh, stop complimenting me. Stop telling me I'm doing a good job. (laughs) Nobody ever does that. So for the most part, we go the wrong direction and we are too stingy with our praise and our affirmations of success. And I'll just say one more thing about, I did experiments in the mid nineties with computers that gave out praise because I wanted to see the impact of that. And it was super powerful, even though they knew it was a machine saying, you did a good job on this. It was super powerful. And in one of the conditions of the experiment, and this shows how powerful it is, they knew the praise was false. Because I told them going into the experiment, like what the computer tells you is totally false. It's totally programmed. It has nothing to do with you. But yet, it had the same impact as the people that thought the praise was true. In other words, the way I interpreted the data and the results is people are so starving to feel like they're succeeding and having a positive impact in the world that no matter where it comes from, even a fortune cookie, they're going to suck it up and go, oh yeah, that's true. (laughs) So let's not be stingy with our praise, but it needs to be true. I think that's just an ethical issue. The the most positive, true thing you can tell somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. And so I want to go back to the fog behavior model for a second. And I want to talk a little bit about the ability and motivation pieces of it. So let's maybe let's start with the ability piece because I think the motivation one is going to take us even deeper. But from an ability perspective, you talk about a few different ways. So for fundraisers or for nonprofit leaders who are having trouble, you know, fundraising, probably what they're first inclination to say is that they are lacking ability in some way or another. So what's the first thing you want them to think about? So within the context of ability, which is how hard or easy something is to do, there are five factors. And think of it as a chain. You know, So there's think of these, this chain with five links. And some of the links might be really strong and some might be really weak. That's the right way to think about it. And that's a model that I call the ability chain. One is how much time does it take? Okay, if somebody's really busy and your donation page requires 15 minutes, then time's going to be a really weak link for them. If somebody's retired and they have all the time in the world, then it's going to be a strong link for them. So notice it's different for different people. The next one is money. How much money does it require? So let's say I want people to, I want my students to come here to Maui and take classes with me. Well, they may not have the money to do it. Okay, but if I could get them here for $29, maybe. So next you consider money. And there's not really an order. I'm just going through the five links in the chain. So it's how much time, how much money. Now, somebody who's super rich, money will probably be a strong link. How much thinking does it require? How much cognitive effort? Mm. So if it's like, hey, go through this and do this and then put in this tax thing and then figure out what category and then go find the industry code. Oh my gosh, a lot of thinking. And then the next is how much physical effort does it require? And I know we're talking about online forms, but click, click, scroll, scroll down. That's Mm. part of physical effort. And this is part of what I did yesterday. Mallory, I don't think I'm exaggerating. There are 10 pages. I had to scroll and the iPad really wasn't that responsive on every single one to go find the next button. I had to sign all 10 pages 
and the signature thing wasn't working. And so, yes, it took time, but the tediousness of it, that's the physical effort was tedious. And then the fifth link is kind of an odd one, but it, if it causes somebody to break their routine, then it's no longer simple. So what you want to do is make it fit into their routine. And from a fundraising perspective, that might be when does your potential donor typically make donations? What time of year or what time of day or what day of the week? Mm. Um, and so you want to fit it into their routine rather than you know calling them in like May and say, donate now. And they're like, uh, no, I typically donate in December or whatever <laughs> that happens, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to think time, money, physical effort, mental effort, and don't cause them to violate or change the routine. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, when I think about fundraisers from an ability perspective for themselves, right? Like they have the ability to make donor phone calls or have meetings. I'm, you know, a lot of what I hear is I don't have time, right? The amount of coaching calls I've been on where we, I've given someone homework and they come back the next week and they're like, oh, I didn't have time. I'm like, well, you managed to find time for a lot of other things, but, you know, then we make it simpler and simpler and simpler because I learned from you, right? To the, to the point where it's really impossible for it to be a time issue. And even actually inside my course, Power Partners, I do something, I created this method called five and dive, where I only let people prospect five people at a time before they have to outreach to them. Because so much of what I hear is, well, I'm still working on my prospect list, or I'm still cleaning up our data, right? And they're never going to have perfect data, like never. So I'm like, okay, five, you get five, and then you go five, and then you go and it keeps them, you know, that momentum and the action. So then they've simplified it or they've sort of figured out the the holes in their chain. Hopefully they're using your book to figure out how to go deep into them. That Those are fixed. So then we go to motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go to motivation, Mallory, because you know, we've shifted to the, the listener of this podcast and her or his behavior. Sometimes things aren't that hard to do, but they feel hard to do. I'll give a quick example. While I'm in Maui, I like the dentist I use here and I want to get my teeth clean, but they're scheduled way out. So I've got to call them to say, do you have a cancellation, right? Now, in my mind, it's like, okay, call my dentist, see if I have a cancellation. That feels like a big project until I write down the phone number. How long does it take me to write down the phone number? 15 seconds. Once I write it down, then suddenly making a call to my dentist gets so you know, from a psychology perspective, a perception perspective, gets so much easier. So part of making something easy to do if it seems big and hard is just take the first step, write down the phone number, make a list of the five people you're going to reach out to, write a draft email, not even the real email, just write a draft one really quickly. It's almost like whenever you feel resistance, just take the next steps and sometimes lower your standards. And that just has a remarkable impact in moving projects forward. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because when I was reviewing the book in preparation for this call, that also really stood out to me. You talk about a woman in there who turns on the stove, right? Was having trouble with a morning breakfast routine. And so the tiny habit was turn on the stove, right? And then once she was there, she was like, well, I'm not going to not heat up the oatmeal or whatever it is she was eating. And so it really made me think, you know, okay, for my five and dive program, it really is. Okay. Just write down the names and those five phone numbers, right? That's step one. And so I think 
that is such an important piece. And I love that you're always kind of depersonalizing away from this being like a fault of ours, right? That we couldn't get ourselves over some simple thing to do. do Yeah. Yeah. So is that part related to like, I know the solve there is related to ability, right? Making it Mm -hmm. simpler to do, but is any of that kind of like dread or resistance related to motivation? Perfect segue. Yeah. So if you made something super, super simple, then your fear around it may decrease. Like if it's so, or your anxiety or whatever, it's like, well, it's so easy. Like if I'm just writing, I'm setting a clock, I'm going to write the draft request email in five minutes. I don't care what it turns out to be. I'm not going to probably send this email. And all I'm doing is setting a timer. Think how much your anxiety or the emotional baggage goes away because you're just like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, just do this for five minutes, see what happens. And many times you will find that email is pretty darn good. And I'm actually going to use it. Sometimes it might be terrible, but you've only invested five minutes. So when people look at a task and they feel like they're not up to the challenge of it, or they're not going to be able to deliver at the quality level, then there is fear around that. So fear is the anticipation of something bad happening. That's why I said it's a combo of making it really easy and sometimes lowering your standards. (laughs) Lower your standards, then you're less afraid of things. And yeah, fear is a motivational factor and it can kick in, it can demotivate you. It can get in the way of doing things when you're unsure of the outcome and you don't want to have a negative outcome. So that's why I make it really easy or lower your standards or just take the next step. And once you take the next step, it seems to have this remarkable way to propel you to take the next step and then the next step and so on. Mm -hmm. And especially if they're celebrating along the way, like, yay, I wrote down those five phone numbers and yay, I even dialed one into my phone. (laughs) You know, and that's going to sound crazy to lots of people, but yes, you're exactly right. It's like, good for me. I got the phone numbers written down. Like I told myself Mm -hmm. I would. Good for me. And so you are self-reinforcing. You're giving yourself shine for these tiny things. And so many people think, well, that's not really worthy of me feeling successful around. And Mm -hmm. one way to think about it is how many days... How many days of the last year did you not do that behavior? However simple it was. Maybe it's most days. Now put it in the broader context. You did it today where you didn't do it 95% of the last, you know, 300 days. So mm-hmm. good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So one of the skills, <laughs> and you saw this in the book, Mallory, is the ability to allow yourself to feel successful for even the tiniest of successes. Now that doesn't come natural to everybody. But the more you can let yourself feel successful for even the tiniest of successes, the more you will have these transformative, like these pivot moments where you do something tiny and it opens you up to doing much bigger things. Mm, I love that. And I I was just thinking when you were talking about the self shine, you know, that my Emmy, my daughter is now almost two, which is crazy. I don't know what happened, but she, and she, my husband only speaks Spanish to her. I speak English, but every time she does something um, that she's proud of herself for, she goes, bravo, Emmy. And I, and I'm like, and so you saying that I'm like, yeah, like what, where do we lose, you know, a, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for this that we sort of stop that, but what is wrong with taking that moment for celebration? And especially when it's backed by so much research that that's going to actually lead you to be able to cement those behaviors. 
Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm going to flip the question around. What is wrong with people who don't say good for me? And I'm not sure wrong is quite the right word. And in my Stanford lab, we have a project that we're studying the upregulation of positive emotions, which is the technical term for causing yourself to having a positive emotion go up. But the people that are hesitant to celebrate have characteristics like they tend to be more isolated, they tend to be more depressed, they tend to be more fearful, kinds of things you might expect. And I ran across this research and it's like, yep, there are people that resist feeling shine and that's too bad. And I don't yet have an answer for that. I'm hoping in my Stanford Research Project, we will find ways but one of the ways, one of the ways in the tiny habits world is rather than just saying, woohoo, good for me, or, you know, smile and fist pump, is to actively think about the purpose as you do it. So let's say as you write down the five phone numbers, actively think, not just I got it done, but let's say I'm writing it down for the Redwoods, the old growth Redwoods where I live. It's like by writing down these phone numbers, I am taking steps to preserve those Redwoods for hundreds of years. So I connect that action, even though it's tiny, with a larger purpose that really matters to me. So that active connection, thinking about, or even saying out loud, yep, I am saving the Redwoods for my grandkids and great-grandkids. As you write, that is a way that doesn't feel hokey to most. It's, and I call that a purpose-focused celebration. So you're focusing on the big purpose. Not just I'm raising more money. That's not the big purpose. The big purpose is what that money can achieve and do that matters for you. Mm -hmm. I love all of that. And I think, yes, of course, there's nothing wrong with us having that, you know, self-celebration. I think a lot of nonprofit leaders feel like they don't deserve it for the small milestones, right? And, and now we're talking about really tiny milestones. But something I talk about a lot is that inside a lot of nonprofit culture, you know, they have the big budgetary goals and some organizations have monthly benchmarks, maybe. Certainly, I've never ever seen an organization with weekly benchmarks or daily benchmarks, right? And so if they feel like they don't know how they're doing on those bigger goals, they feel like they don't deserve to celebrate little things like that, right? That don't have a direct impact yet, or that they can't see or touch or feel on the number that they're ultimately being sort of held accountable for at an organizational level. So I think what you're talking about is critical for them to start to do because it is those small behaviors over time that hit those budget goals. Absolutely. And, and you know, like I said a few minutes ago, the skill of being able to feel shine or feel successful, even for the tiniest of things, is a transformative skill. And if you don't have it, everybody work on it, okay? <laughs> you are not deceiving yourself or others. You're not being unethical. What you're doing is you're tapping into a superpower. Mm. The shine, feeling shine on demand is a superpower. So it's not like you're doing something wrong or hokey or woo-woo. You are learning to tap into this superpower, which is a positive emotion on demand, which then just really opens so many doors. It's transformative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. And Okay, so let's dive in just for a second into the fear thing a little bit deeper, because this is this is where I'm because, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast, the fundraisers, the nonprofit leaders, they would tell you that they are the most motivated people to be raising money for their organizations. Right. If they found themselves in this role, my guess is they think that there is no motivation issue there. And you already said that, you know, fear is a part of motivation. But I think, you know, even in my work three years ago, when I was talking about this work, lots of people were sort of saying like, oh no, like I'm not afraid to fundraise. I'm fine. And then when COVID hit and there was all of a sudden, I put this little form on Facebook in one group and maybe on my personal profile, just saying, you know, I saw people giving away lots of free resources. And I was like, well, I could do a little fearless fundraising webinar. So I just put this little thing, wasn't even linked to my website, went to bed, woke up, 180 people had signed up. I was like, okay, people are ready to talk about their fears around fundraising. So what is the like through your model and your teaching is the way to address fear to just continually focus on decreasing how difficult the thing is? Yes, that's step one. That's step one. There's actually three steps and you take them in order. And the first step is if, so you have, let's say, call it a prospect. You have hope. So think of hope as an arrow pushing you up over the action line, a motivational arrow. Hope is the anticipation of something good happening, all right? Fear is the opposite. It's the anticipation of something bad happening. So for calling a donor, fear is like an arrow pushing down. So you have hope pushing up, fear pushing down, and they're like vectors in physics. The stronger the fear, the lower the motivation, right? Because it will push it down. And the stronger the hope, the higher the motivation. Now, if you can get rid of fear entirely, the hope can just surge. But that's not always easy to do. So first step is exactly what we said. Make it as easy as possible. That's step one. And if it's super easy, then that makes the fear less relevant, less impactful. And hope can carry the day. If that still doesn't lead to doing the behavior, then you can either focus on the hope or the fear. And it's better to focus on the fear aspects. Because the hope is already there. You just have to let it shine. It's like a hot air balloon that already has hot air in it, but it has all this ballast. It has all these sandbags on it. So either you can pump in more hot air or you can let the sandbags go. So addressing the fear is like letting the sandbags go so the balloon can go up, so the hope can lift it up. And so, so yeah, so it's make it easy. Then look at what is the fear and see if you can minimize or get rid of that fear. And there are you know, at least five different fears, I would imagine, for this kind of thing. And that's really the next step. And what you probably don't have to do, let, let's say you have a colleague who uh, she's resisting making the phone calls. You've made it really easy for her. And then most people just try to say, it's so important, and you know, try to boost the motivation. No, try to figure out what is, 
what are the fears that she has, address those fears, because she already has hope, just like the balloon with air in it. You just have to let her release those sandbags. And then you don't have to like push, this is why it's so important. And we got to save the redwoods and because she already has it. You just have to help her get rid of those sandbags, the demotivation of fear. Oh my gosh, that five minutes like that. I mean, just seriously, every board member needs to hear that. Every executive director with fundraisers under them needs to hear that because you're right. We are all banging our heads against the wall talking about how important it is. And it's like, we know, (laughs) you know, and, and even one of the things I've said to a lot of executive directors that have fundraisers under them and to board members is even creating space for your fundraisers to talk about being afraid of things is critical. I spent 13 years thinking I must be a horrible fundraiser because it felt uncomfortable and I had fear. So I'm like, I gotta be, I must be bad at this. There's no way the good fundraisers feel this and choose yeah. this as their <laughs> job every day, right? I had a whole story about it. And I certainly didn't feel like there was any space for me to ever say to a leader, I'm nervous about that. You know, I just mm-hmm. sent an, I've written this $18 million proposal. I, I'm watching myself procrastinate on sending it and I'm scared. And so I really hope that people hear that and start to open up these conversations. Well, so exciting that you opened up that training and what did you say? 180 people just signed up. That really shows you <laughs> how, I mean, this is really important. And just to address that so directly and compassionately, as I'm sure you will do, because these it's not like you can say, oh, don't be afraid. That's not the answer. Yeah. I mean, people... Their emotions are legitimate things. And to acknowledge that and help them, how do I want to say this? To help them recognize where it's coming from and in some ways the reality of it. Like, is it real Mm -hmm. or not real and to what extent? Back 20 years ago, long story, but I was making, I was selling janitorial services in Silicon Valley (laughs) (laughs) because my partner was starting um, a janitorial service in Silicon Valley. And that means sales. And so... This is even more than 20 years ago. So that's kind of scary. But what we figured out over the course of a few weeks is we had our script. So it was really easy. And it wasn't about persuading people to do the janitorial, to, to, to like change their janitorial service. It was just discovering if they were happy with their current mm. service. So the call was like, hi, it's BJ. Da, 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 da. Are you happy with your current cleaning service? But mm. the answer was yes. I was like, terrific. Okay, all the best to you. Bye. So that was not a failure. So what what it was is what we were doing is seeking for people who were unhappy with their service. And if they were happy, fine. We just Mm -hmm. thanked them nicely. We went to the next one. If they were unhappy, then there were things we could do. Mm. So it wasn't so much about my skill in persuading people. It was just be efficient and nice and direct and find out, is there a need here? Mm. If there's not a need, I'm going to move on. And so that really took the emotion and the anxiety about my own performance off the table. Basically, you just, are you sure you haven't taken my fundraising course? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because that is a lot of what I talk about is how do you approach people with like a win-win mindset and really ask them questions about what do they want to see? What is Mm -hmm. keeping them up at night? And because when you're having those, you're right, maybe maybe they're not related to what you're doing at all, in which case I hope they find the organization that is relevant for them. But if it's aligned with you, then there's your power partner, you know? So 
I just, I love that you shared that story with us and I want to be really respectful of your time, but we, I know, I knew the time was just going to fly right by, but I don't want to let you go without giving you an opportunity to tell people two things, one, where and how they can find you. And then two, to highlight a nonprofit that is meaningful to you. And for folks who can and are interested, we'll go check it out and give it a thank you. Uh, you can find me at two websites. BJFog.com is uh, kind of the jumping off point for most of my work. Tinyhabits.com is about the tiny habits method in the book and so on. So you can find me there and you can find me on some social channels. I don't do a ton on that, but um, that and you know, there's ways you can book free appointments with me where I just help people. You can do a free tiny habits program, et cetera. The nonprofit that uh, one I really love is a local one called Steward of the Coasts and Redwoods. And this is in Sonoma County, and they take care of the Arms- Armstrong Redwood Forest, mm-hmm. which I love. On my birthday, that's where I go. I go to Armstrong Redwoods, old growth redwoods, and just it's sacred. It is mm. just sacred. So that organization oversees that and some other things locally. And I've seen their budget and I've been on some discussions. It's tiny. And so donations to them does so much for preserving Mm. these redwoods that can't be, no amount of money can recreate a redwood that's hundreds of years old. So we really need Mm. to preserve them and honor them and save them for generations that follow. Okay. So I didn't know you were going to say that organization, but I just, I'm like covered in goosebumps right now because that was one of the first places that my husband and I went away for a weekend. And then we brought our entire wedding there to go hiking the day before our wedding, because it is also such a special place to us. So I'm, um, I'm wow. That's perfect. (laughs) Well, there's things like that, you know, people have different kind of passions and callings and to support what's going on there. And it's local and it's small scale and it's a very efficient for those reasons and others. I'm a big champion of that organization. Well, thank you for sharing it. And thank you for all of your time today and for joining us. Uh, this has been amazing. And I'll make sure folks have links and everything to find you and do the tiny habit challenge. Everyone go do it now. It's amazing. I make all my clients do it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mallory. All right. I'm not going to lie. If you are reeling from this episode and feeling like you missed one of the incredible points that Dr. Fogg made, you're just like me. So don't you worry. After this conversation, I wanted to create about 10 new resources for all of my fundraising clients. There were so many mind-blowing points that were made and the application to fundraising, both for fundraisers and also for funders, I just can't get over it. So as I mentioned at the beginning, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast for the detailed show notes with all of the top tips and tricks, plus access to more free resources for my 15 years of fundraising. You'll also find more information about Dr. Fogg there, including a link to his free five-day program to help you start building tiny habits now. Most importantly, thank you for spending this time with us today. I am so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. 
If you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.